What happened in the last case you worked with Navarro? That was good. Until it wasn't. They were too late. There was nothing we could do. I'm working on this new case. A missing scientist. Found on the edge of the villages. Frozen solid. What do you want? It's been six years. Why are you here? Because we both know what really happened. I don't need my help. Fine. I'm just gonna do this one thing. Work together to close this case. That's it for the two of us. It is. So, you want in or what? Killer Casting. I am Lisa Zambetti, Casting Director, and with me today, on a very special evening, is my wingman. Oh, this is where I jump in. Yeah, look at the chemistry, huh? Yeah, it's like the secrets of comedy timing. Uh, yes, hi folks from down under. It is Dean, and very happy to be here on this, as Lisa hinted, a very special occasion. And what is that special occasion, Lisa? So we are launching in to something that is absolutely on our brand, if I may. I hate that term, but anyway, it's on our brand, right? We are going to be covering True Detective Season 4, which is very killery and has certainly got a lot of casting that I want to dig into. Um, I was a huge fan of Season 1 for all kinds of different reasons, And I had a friend who actually was in it, and we can talk about that. He was in the infamous single shot scene that just blew everybody's mind. But yeah, that's what we're going to launch into a new series. Um, But Dean, I'm going to hand the reins over to you for now. Okay. Well, look, um, uh, as you mentioned, season one was the season that blew everybody's minds away with uh, McConaughey and, um, and Woody. But I hold the heretical view, Lisa. Ah, that season two and three, which were fairly got muted reactions, but I really liked season two. I thought the the leads in that were the brilliantly cast: Colin Farrell, um, Vince Vaughn, and Rachel McAdams. And what I liked about it was that they did they stuck the landing right. They just went happy endings be screwed, and I just thought it ended really well. So I liked two, and I haven't seen three. So there you go. But anyway. Back to season four, which this first uh, episode has got rave reviews and everyone's comparing it to season one, although, of course, they're completely different um, landscapes. We've got the frozen tundra of, um, of Alaska versus the swampy Louisiana. But nonetheless, it's a new series, and for the first time, the original showrunner, Nick Pizzolato, is taking a back seat. He's still listed as an EP, but I wonder if whether it was his decision or the, the studios that said, look, you know, one was good, but two and three didn't quite cut it, let's do something different. Or if he went, hey, you know, I've had three goes at it, maybe it's time for fresh blood. And they've got fresh blood indeed with the Mexican director, um, uh, Issa Lopez. And I must say, I'd never heard of her, Lisa. Did you know of her before this? I don't think I have. No. no. I looked her up and I went and found her most recent film. I watched the trailer and I went, oh, I have to see this because you instantly understand why they've tapped her for this one. She's very much in the vein of Guillermo del Toro. She's about magic realism mm-hmm. and horror 
and suspense. And so that's what we're seeing already in season one in here. So the movie that you might want to look up, folks, is Tigers Are Not Afraid. And it's a pretty hard story. It's about five young Mexican kids whose parents are murdered by the cartel in Mexico. And it's how they survive and they move through their lives, uh, dealing with that sort of just incredible violence. So that not because it's violent, but just that when you see the clip, you'll understand there's some sort of mythical kind of creatures in there, a bit like Pan's Labyrinth, and I think she's spot on to be the the, the right one for for the job. So, Lisa, should we just set the scene with the sort of with with the two leads in here? Because what I liked about this from the get go was having seen three series where we had these two male dominated sort of leads we've now gone yeah. to that. and I don't think it's a woke thing at all I don't think it's that at all I think they're just brilliantly cast and wonderfully written and of course it's written by a woman so Issa has so far she's written and directed the um the pilot she's directing all of it because she's the new runner I assume but she might not and whether she writes everything remains to be seen but I love the fact that we've got these two really interesting female characters so what do you think about them so far yeah, I mean, there's so much to say just in the very beginning. Just the tone. Look, what I've come to realize about myself is that I love a cold tundra. I mean, <laughs> it just does something for me. And I'm realizing because I'm watching the beginning, which is, as you say, it's set, you know, kind of near the Arctic Circle or it's set in Alaska. And I realized that I love the series Fortitude. It was also set in a similar place. And I loved the series Arctic Circle, which is a Nordic mystery that also has female, it's a female-driven story with a determined female detective. So there's something very symmetrical about you know, women who are work very, very hard and have a real sense of ethics and righteousness. And yet they're in this incredibly unforgiving landscape that is, you know, enveloped by the night most of the time. So there's something I've just realized, I love the thing. And and this this show right from the get-go is smacking the thing all oh, over the place. It's got all time. kinds of, of references and everything. I mean, not just the landscape, but this sort of isolated scientific outpost where the way that you cope with everyday life is just, it's almost like being on a submarine. I mean, and I love that. That was true with the thing. It's true with fortitude, but people who live in these places where you can't be outside, or if you are outside, you're with your gun and you're taking your life into your hands because of the elements. I mean, it's such an intense place to be. And so, but I loved, I love watching people moving through this community, whether you're going to the, to a restaurant or going to, to your midnight hookup or you're tucking your kid into bed. I mean, the way that you have to survive and, and have your, just your daily grind of your life, I just love it. I, I just, I'm so, so into it. I agree. And uh, what I love about the two leads is that here we've got, you know, first of all, Jodie Foster is Liz, the chief police, Liz Danvers. And it's, as soon as I saw her, I was like, I don't know if she's been made up or whether this is how she is now. I mean, you know, it's been, God, what is it, 40 years now or whatever since Silence of the Lambs or however long it's been. But she reminded me a little bit of Mayor of Easttown and the way Kate was in that not afraid and certainly not even afraid, but happy or proud to just show this is a woman of, of this age, right? So she looks a bit like, I had the thought, it's like as if Clarice Starling had not got, had eventually got out of the FBI or something happened to her and then she ended up having to take this job. She looks worn down. She's weary. She's sort of jaded. 
Uh, and she's sort of almost going through the motions. You get the feeling that if she could be somewhere else, she might want to be. Just to comment on what you just said, I think that definitely in this role of Liz Danvers, there's a brittleness to her that I don't recall that being Clarice. And it's probably because she was so much younger then and and Clarice was, you know, as as you say, you know, she was a newbie FBI agent, but there was a softness, I think, to Clarice. I think there was a real vulnerability and sorrow to her. And I think that, I mean, I don't quite see the line between those characters that you do because this character is like a matchstick. I mean, she's so brittle and ready to ignite on the wrong person or the right person. But uh, I I do agree that she she looks like she should look, you know, she's not overly preserved, as we like to say. I mean, her <laughs> hair is a little, her hair is a little kind of perfectly curled for me, mm. but that's okay. I mean, yeah. so what? I don't, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Um, but let's, why don't we just set the scene? What is the opening quote, Dean, that the show's on the Chiron? So we have a cold open, which features uh, a, a cryptic quote. And the quote says, well, we do not know what beasts the night dreams when its hours grow too long or even God to be awake. Now, that is attributed, Lisa, to someone called Hildred Castain. But it turns out that this is a bit of a throwback to season one because it's from uh, an obscure novel from the 1800s. It's a book that references the king in yellow, and that was a central part of the cult that sort mm, of was driving all the yellow all, all, king. Yeah, yeah, the yellow yeah. king in season one. I'm going to go down that rabbit hole because it's very deep. You can, I'll put a link in the show notes and you can check it out. I just love that it sets the tone. I just loved everything about it. I love that that sets the tone. It tells us not in kind of opposite the way that Fargo does, where this is a true story <laughs> and the dead and the living and the this, which is fine. But I just, I love the poetry of this quote and the bleakness and the scariness of this quote. As I love, as we open up on this Arctic, and I love the Chirons are so spare. Yes. They give you the coordinates of where we are. December 17th, the last sunset of the year. I mean, the setup, I mean, just in a few seconds sets you up for this cold and clammy finger at the back of your spine kind of a vibe, which I just love it. And we see this lone indigenous hunter trying to take down a you know a herd of caribou. He's got them in his sights. And then just great effect of just as he's about to, you know, his trigger finger is wiggling. He's about to take the shot. And as the sun starts to set, the caribou start to react to something. And I feel like I have seen a scene like this before. Where yeah, the, where I had nature, the same reaction. Mm. You know, where, where nature starts to react to something that we can't see. And they start to basically kill themselves by, you know, jumping like lemmings off of a cliff. I feel like I've seen that before, but it's still really, it still really worked. Well, anyway, as you say, one of them bellows in like a warning and then they all come to believe they're you know dancer and donner and blitzen and off they go off the cliff, <laughs> but it doesn't end well so it's right. sort of a shocking opening but um there we go i mean and that's like in like two minutes in two minutes it establishes so much now we're in this outpost research station okay and they just establish so brilliantly the life on board this research station. Like yeah. one person's doing the laundry. One person is making a sandwich. One person is grabbing a cuppa before they settle in with the book. And there's just enough familiarity and just enough of something you can see who kind of 
is annoyed by who and who kind of gets, you know, you just sort of get this. These people have been here for a long time and they know each other. One guy's in his bathrobe, grabbing his book or whatever. One person is making a sandwich in, in a doing a TikTok video, which I'm sure there is somebody somewhere on a research station doing that exact same thing, you know? And it was such a, a hard, because we cut hard from the reindeer's you know, the sorry, the caribou off the edge of the cliff. And then there's an aerial that just pushes in on, on this. And it's like sleek and modern and well-lit and warm and comfortable. And the name of it is called Salal. Yeah. Okay, that's what it is, yeah. And I just thought that's a really odd name. And it doesn't seem, you know, Native American. It doesn't seem Alaskan. So, you know me, Lisa, I had to pause and look it up. <laughs> and it is a place in uh, like a... Lovecraftian horror story, uh, like uh, something to do with a mystery, I don't know. But the thing that leapt out at me was that the origin of the word is an old Hebrew word, which means to become or grow dark. And I mm. thought, mm, very interesting. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, the facility, that little sequence where they just cut, 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 they show you pretty much everybody, I think. And the thing that struck me about it was it was like it looked like a really fancy IKEA showroom all the stuff, mm-hmm. like, it, you know, it wasn't like the thing yeah. where everything's rough and, you know, they clump in with their boots and there's mud and, and water everywhere. It was, like, really nice. Like, you could eat your dinner off the floor. It looked cozy and comfortable. Like, they oh, yeah. made it the That's best super, they can. Oh, and we, and we forgot that on the TV, they have Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, yeah. well, we'll get to you that because that, that becomes quite yeah. quite uh, thing. But anyway, yeah, it, it's got the gym, it's got the equipment, it's got the library, it's got these little reading nooks. <laughs> I had the thought, shit, I'd like to live there. Like, that looks really cool. It was that nice. Anyway, so, yeah, it was a great little sequence to introduce us to all of those characters. You know, everything seems to be going. It's just another day in the life of this of evening, or maybe it's the morning. I have no idea what time it is at this point because um, everything is going to be dark. It's just kind of a day in their lives. Unfortunately, it's it's the last day in their lives when all of a sudden, right away, you see the back. And actually, it's so weird because I totally recognize this actor from the back of his head. I don't know oh, how that yeah. happened. It's um, but, the um, the actor is Owen McDonald. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's so he's playing the scientist. His last name is Clark. And listeners would be familiar with him perhaps because he played Nick Palustri, who was the husband of Eve from um, from Killing Eve. Yeah. So, so he was Sandra O's. Yeah, husband Sandra Eve. Yeah. But I recognized him right away just from the back of his head and just a, a little piece of his uh, of his profile. And something is very wrong with him. He starts to shake. And I thought, oh, my gosh, is this going to be an alien moment where something like, you know, spouts out of his chest? But he just says she's awake and that's it. And then. Yeah. But but he's got a horrified look on his face. It's like mm-hmm. he's, he's shit scared. And the guy giving him this was making the sandwich. Who I think it's Fakunda. But as soon as he says that. You hear this, and the power goes out, and everything drops to black, and we cut. And it's like, oh, shit, what's just happened? So you really want to know. Yeah. Right, right, right. So then we are off, and that's the premise. It's going to be the premise for the rest of the episode. And it looks like a couple days later, you know, the happy trucker approaches, and you just know, like, (laughs) oh, God, this can't be good. We don't know what's happening, but this happy trucker is going to come in, and he's going to find something horrible. But he doesn't really find anything. There's that eeriness of, hello? You know, Mm. nobody's there. Everything is just as they've left it. And he drops his keys, and on the floor he sees a severed tongue. So whose tongue is it? What, who severed it? That's all just a big old mystery. So now we finally get to the, uh, the opening titles over um, Billie Eilish. 
and uh, we're off and running. We're off to the races. We've had our scene set, and um, away we go. So take it away, boss. Right. So the, here we go to this crab packing plant, I guess, and we're introduced to you know one of our two leads. And so the way that they introduce her is that there's a guy who's out cold. Apparently, she was he was hit by a metal bucket by one of the workers there. Um, because he was harassing his intimate partner and and the intimate partner's friend was like not going to have it. So she, you know, knocked him out. And so in comes our, you know, law enforcement. We're not quite sure who she is, but she turns out to be Evangeline Navarro. What a great name, Navarro. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just love saying that name. And she kind of comes in and is like, okay, what's going on here? And she's a trooper. And again, Dean, I know in the past you've asked me, so what's the difference between the police and this and that? Well, you know, uh, whatever the difference is, obviously being a trooper is not, and we know this from Trooper Wit in Fargo, being a trooper is not as high of a status as being, you know, part yeah. of the Alaska police yeah, force. I, I, I've since managed to wrap my head around it. I now understand that you've got Metropolitan that's policed by Metropolitan Police. So you've got Liz who's working for, it's weird, she's working for the Ennis police department and you see that on her badge but at the bottom of it it says apd and i'm going apd anchorage police department but they're not in anchorage so of course i had to look it up and it turns out that it stands for alaskan police yeah department. alaskan police department yeah right mm -hmm. but that it doesn't exist lisa they made it up there's no such thing oh, as okay. an alaskan police it'd be like having the california okay. police there is no california police department right they're all <laughs> they're towns so they're part of ennis county and it's got afp on the bottom but that's that's a made-up thing but the interesting part about the uh the uniform i don't know if you clocked this but on the badge for the ennis police department is a big mama polar bear and a little baby polar bear Really? Uh, on the badge. So, again, that will become uh, relevant. Sort of, we, we're introduced to Navarro, who's a the tribe that, that they're from there in Alaska is called Inupiaq. So, they're the, the native people there. And yeah, she's come to, you know, they've had a call that this guy was beating. It wasn't just harassing, he was beating um, right. his intimate partner because she's got a cold compress to her, her left eye. So, he's obviously right handed. But anyway, yeah, he he wakes up and he's like pissed off. He goes to run at her. He's gonna, I'm gonna beat you up, you bitch. And then, what I loved about it was that that Navarro takes him down like mm -hmm. a boss, like like a like a like a MMA fighter. She just kicks him in the back of his knee and just like a boxer that she really is in yes, real life. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I didn't know because I'd never seen her before. And she's like, she's an authentic two time two weight division genuine world boxing champion so this and when you see her like physically when she there's a there's a sex scene later and it's like oh yeah i'm not answering back to this woman at all at any time she's like she's the goods yeah but she's got such a great appearance i mean yes she's big she's indigenous she's strong uh, and she's got piercings in her cheeks and and her nose and you know all over the place oh, and, and a great. massive tap from that's coming up from yeah. her, uh, out of her um sort of collar and goes up all the way to her ear she's like it's almost like maori it's interesting but anyway yeah it's amazing she just has this amazing presence so i looked her up right away and i was like Oh, she's with CAA. That's weird. She has like no no credits to be with CAA. But then I realized, you know, 
one of the things that CA is really known for is is representing sports, you know, athletes and and people at the top oh, of their athletic right. prowess. So that's probably why she's with CAA, and they very smartly are, you know, transitioning her to becoming wow, just an amazing, amazing force. On well, considering screen. she's got very little right. acting experience, her press, I, I suppose it's from boxing because I mean, boxing is a lot about acting, right? Plenty of boxers will say that. I think it was Angelo Dundee or um, Ali said. The, the the core skill in boxing is lying, right? So mm-hmm. a, a boxer yeah. will shake to jab, but then they turn it into a hook. So they're, they're uh, lying to you all the time with their physicality. And there's an element of showmanship, of course, to any kind of um, mm-hmm. ring sport. And uh, yeah, she's, but she's clearly got it in spades. So yeah. Well, I've always it. said this, you know, when people are, you know, on a, are studying with me or I'm teaching classes that that transitioning to becoming an actor after you've been like, a musician or or an athlete where you're used to being watched. Yeah. I mean, that's just a huge part of an actor's training, just being used to being yourself and being watched. It's hu- it's a huge thing to be able to not crack under that pressure. So anyway, I thought she was all, just from the get-go, she's amazing. But now we we get to the next entrance, very important entrance where we meet uh, Jodie Foster's character, Liz Danvers, who, as you say, is the chief of police, and she makes her entrance at this scientific outpost. They're arriving to see what is going on. The delivery man has obviously reported the tongue and that everybody's missing. And he, she's greeted by one of my favorite actors, John Hawks. <laughs> John Hawks, I mean, yep. he's just, what, what a face, what a voice, what a presence i mean he he just has such tremendous range where he can be goofy and threatening and vulnerable and disgusting at the same time <laughs> i mean in all the different things i've seen him do so it's interesting so again we're getting this quick scene where we're we're getting to see the dynamic between them so she comes in she's looking all around this the 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 science you know the, the this the space station or the science station trying to gather clues we see that in a dynamic between her and John Hawks's character and his name is Hank Pryor Hank Pryor yep and then with them we don't know it when we meet him but there's a young officer there who is Pete, Pete Pryor, and that turns out to be Hank's son. So the three of them are, you know, trying to get up to speed, trying to see what the hell happened here. Where where are these scientists? Um, because they they can't find it. So I love how they they go through all the scientists, all their rooms and how you're trying to sort of reverse engineer who these people are by their floss, their 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 dental floss, and the pictures in their room, and and I just I I, I just love that just right away you jump in, and then she you know is trying to turn off the TV because it's just blasting Ferris Bueller, and she does find this whiteboard that says we are all dead. Mm, ominous, isn't it? Very ominous. Very yes. ominous. So I think they've put this scene in Lisa for a very particular reason because she's not just turning it off because it's blasting. When she walks through the door, like in the garage when she's talking to Hank, she's okay. But as soon as she walks through the door into the corridor, I would say that she is really triggered by that song. Mm. She goes running into, where is that coming from? And he points. And she goes running into the room and there's Peter. He's, He's tried to turn it off, but he can't. He's sitting at a computer. He's doing work. She rips the a sheet that Peter's hung over the TV because it was pissing him off, and she's frantically trying to turn this thing off. She eventually Mm -hmm. finds, and and it seems to be looping on the twist and shout when Ferris is miming, singing that the Beatles song Mm -hmm. on on Mm -hmm. the car, on the float sort of thing, but she is not happy. 
And she, she finds the sort of door that you know, the, in the cupboard. She pushes it and it clicks open, and she just mashes the the front of the DVD player until it stops. And she's like, <sighs> and she looks at Peter, who's looking at her like, "What the actual fuck?" And she just sort of shrugs and goes, "Not a Beatles fan, okay." I suspect that um, later on, okay, we'll get to it. But later on, I think I think I, I think it's a song that holds a particular emotional impact for her and that they were sort of, you know, foreshadowing that a bit. I also saw that there was, a, a, a nice little Easter egg and, B, uh, I spotted a continuity error. So when she's at the TV to the left of her and to the left of screen, there's a, a bookshelf. And when she first walks in, you can see that there's a copy of The Thing that's sitting on the shelf. Yeah, are you kidding? Oh, that's yeah. hilarious. And but the face of it is facing out, right? So there's the initial scene where you see that. And then when she's crouched down on the on her knees smashing the DVD player, there it is again, but it's been it's been moved one shelf down by the by the crew, and now we just see the spine of it. Then mm-hmm. after she stands up and says, "Guess I'm not a Beatles fan." It's back up on the top shelf with the thing facing out. So of course, we all know, well, you know, and I know that that means that that tells you how they shot <laughs> that particular sequence, right? So they they set up and lit for when she was standing up and the camera was sort of, you know, in front of or between her and Peter. So they've shot the opening scene, they've shot the end scene, and then they've got her to crouch down and see the next one. And someone's gone, oh, we should put the thing back in there in case someone didn't notice it. We'll put oh, it down so here funny. with the spine out. But when they've cut it, <laughs> it's gone face out. Spine out, face oh, out. So, wow, anyway. wow. Yeah. Good catch, Dino. I love that. I well, love that. The other thing that I, where she was moving around and another thing reference is that if I said to you, what is the movie that features a bunch of scientists in the snow and they're drilling for core samples and then mayhem ensues and there's, you know, death everywhere, you'd go, oh, well, the thing. It's like, yeah, you would think that, but that describes this as well. So it's not just the mm-hmm. sort of visual cues that they're giving. So uh yeah, we get a glimpse into the relationship and just how grumpy and take no shit she is because she asks Peter, uh, oh, you know, like what's going on or what about this? And he starts to talk and Hank, his father, says, speak up, Peter, and she just snaps back. I can hear him just fine and just puts him in his place. Like mm-hmm. it's like he's saying, oh, she's too old to hear or whatever, or he's just presuming what she wants and, and she's like, uh-uh, nope. Or he's sort of pushing his son to be, come on, you know, be yeah, tougher. Sure, yeah. could be, could be that. But it was an interesting little interplay. But I think, I think it was about her and her sense of her own authority because she says mm-hmm. to Peter, "Well, who funds this place?" And he sort of glances at the at the computer screen and he says, uh, "Government grants, but with an upward inflection on it." And she just mm-hmm. looks at him and says, "Are you asking me or telling me?" Yeah, and it's a smackdown, yeah. and he sort of goes, "Oh shit!" Uh, he sheepishly says, "Okay, I'll I'll look it up." So in 10 seconds, she's put both of them in their place. That's the way I read it anyway. So Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love that. I love that interplay. That's just masterful writing, right? How mm. you can oh. so quickly get somebody there without all of this crazy exposition that is can be very tedious. Yeah. Anyway, so she wants to check out the tongue, and she immediately knows what it all means. She recognizes the kind of tongue it is, that it's somebody who is um, – has has a habit of licking fishing line or whatever she recognizes mm. as somebody of the, who's indigenous and she, she's pretty sure she knows who it is and we're going to find that out later so again these scenes are so quick but they just really just get to it i'm thrilled you know oh yeah no the, the economy of her writing is just unbelievable 
it's yeah, it's just incredible. We're only ten minutes in, and mm-hmm. and they've covered all this ground, and you already know, you know, you've got four characters, well, more because you've got the eight scientists, but the main players are already introduced, and you know what's going on. Brilliant, and it, and it, but it doesn't seem rushed. It just seems, you know, no, it's, it's when it's so- right, it's right. It just flows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, okay, so now we go to one of my favorite actresses. We cut to the great, the legendary Fiona Shaw, who is hacking the shit out of a wolf carcass that's hanging upside down. Another thing reference, Lisa, the wolf in the thing. So there you go oh, again. Right. You're yeah, right. Yeah. You're mm. right. And she is somebody who looks like life has just stomped across her face. You know, I mean, she's she looks very tough and of this world and she turns around and she sees somebody standing in the snow and i immediately knew that this is a ghost or this is something this is a a specter of somebody who is not supposed to be there so we get another kind of foreshadowing of something really ominous is going on anything else about that oh yeah just that if um folks if if you're not if the name fiona shaw doesn't ring a bell she uh, i didn't know this because i've never seen a harry potter but many of you would know her as auntie petunia dernsley from harry potter but to me she was carolyn martins for the head of the russia desk at mi6 in again Mm -hmm. killing eve reference so yeah she's just this guy standing there he's got no shoes he's got just a pair of like you know lightweight pants and and a shirt on and yeah, as you said, it's it's clearly an apparition. So she's either having a vision, or or it's a ghost, or what it is. And she says, "Oh, hello, Travis. What do you want?" So she's not scared about this at all. And I, I instantly thought, "Wait, Travis." And so again, back to season one, Matthew McConaughey's father was named Travis. He moved them, and Cole grew up in Alaska. I did see Fiona Shaw playing Medea at Berkeley Rep, and it was a spectacular, spectacular performance. She's really a force uh, in person. She's not always cast like that. Sometimes she's cast as the prim and proper this and that. But anyway, so now we come back to Chief Danvers's world. We go to her police station and we kind of see all of the characters, the receptionist and all of the people working in this police station. And these two forces, these two powerful women kind of face off with each other and they have a history and it's not particularly a good one. So Navarro is there facing off with Danvers and uh, go ahead and take it. Is there anything significant in this scene as you, as they encounter each other? I just thought again, just to highlight, I mean, we've already discussed it, but it's another evidence, uh, another evidence, (laughs) another, uh, another showing of how economical this can be with, with setting the scene. So Liz, the first words out of Liz's mouth are, it's been six years. Why are you here? So we instantly know that six years have gone by. She hasn't seen her for six years, right? So that's when the, the things that we we're about to discuss went down. So we've now got a timeline. And, mm-hmm. and of course, uh, when Navarro was at the crab plant and she was bundling the guy out, she got a phone call. And she's like, I can't talk right now. And, and then she just stops and her mouth sort of almost falls open. So she's got the call that they found a tongue out at the you know, Salal thing. So, of course, she races over to, she's a trooper. She no longer works out of that building but because she, she's now out in the country, a state trooper. But she she's like, I've got to go and see Ms. Danvers. Chief Danvers is quick to jump in and say, it's not her tongue. And now it comes out that Navarro was obsessed with a, a cold case murder that happened six years ago where a Native American woman was murdered and her tongue was cut out and she didn't solve the crime. And so she's it's one of those crimes that cops become obsessed with. Right. So it's the case of Annie Masu. Kotak. Um, yep. And yeah, so so that's one of those cases that, you know, some 
people in law enforcement can't shake because they feel like they've let down the family and they've let down, you know, even their community. And so she wants to know, she wants Danvers to take this very seriously and connect it to the cold case. But she really has no power. Varro has no power in this situation. No. So then Danvers gets a, all of a sudden gets a call, like, kind of from another parent and is like, oh, shoot, I got to go. And so she runs off to pick up her daughter. I At this point, I can't tell if it's actually her biological daughter or if it's her stepdaughter or foster daughter. But anyway, someone who she is the caregiver of, she has to go pick up this teenager. So what's cool is that with um, Liz Danvers goes and picks up her daughter and is like castigating her for making naughty videos, uh, you know, with her girlfriend. And then they're nearly in a car accident. You know, there's there's a drunk driver that swerves and nearly T-bones them and immediately see that they're both shaken up, but almost too shaken up, too shaken up for the near miss. The daughter is really so we know that there is some kind of history to that. And it turns out that the chief knows the drunk who's driving behind the wheel and goes. And so I love how they establish again, very, very quickly, how small this town is, how everybody knows each other, how this is a drunk. She's like always drunk and she's always drunk driving. And even the neighbors are looking out the window going, oh, it's her again. The guy sticks his head out the window and he says, is that fucking Stacy Chalmers again? Like he, <laughs> he just he hears the crash and just assumes it's her. And of course, he's not wrong. So, uh, yeah. And. As you said, you, you can tell they're, they're shook up more than they should be because, like, all she does is just slide her, the back end of the car into a pole and she breaks the side window, but the car's not probably not even written off. It's not that bad. But there's a really telling scene as Liz gets out of her car and walks towards the wreck, which is not the wreck, the car that's in the pole, and it's about maybe 10, 15 metres away. And at some point she steps on broken glass and we cut to what we assume is a flashback because she's in different shoes and yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and she's stepping on broken glass. It's only about a second, but it's enough to establish that something has happened in the past, probably another auto wreck, there was broken glass involved, and maybe that's the explanation of why there's no husband on the scene. I don't know. We, we don't know. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I clocked that moment of magical realism where suddenly there's no snow and it's sunny. And I was like, I wonder wonder what this means. But what you're saying makes perfect sense that maybe that was the previous accident that they were in that's kind of, um, you know, call uh, call back to it. Yeah, I think so. And and the way that she she arrests Stacey like really roughly, like she's really upset, like more than she should be for just, okay, you you pranked the car again and you've dented the panel. But she's, she's really angry with her. She cuffs her roughly. And uh, it's Peter, um, the young cop that actually takes her off to the pokey. So we go to, I mean, again, these scenes are so tight and they are just bringing the world in so vividly. So you have Navarro waiting for some guy to come out of the mine after his shift. He's the brother of the woman that she just couldn't, she, whose mm. case any, she couldn't solve. Pay. Yeah. And so, you know, she's trying to get a little bit more information from him. She's not supposed to be working this case, but she's still trying to to get any other clue that she might have missed. Um, and the brother is just like, is not feeling very hopeful that they're ever going to solve the case of his murdered yeah. sister, for sure. By exposition, they tell us that, you know, she was a protester against the mine, and but her, her brother worked at the mine, and he even said, we, we barely spoke in the last year. So their relationship was kind of fraught because of that. He relies on the mine for his paycheck, and as he, he even says something like, you know, if we don't have a mine, we don't have a town something like that. And again, something that I thought this is going to be a thing. He says, do you want a beer? And Liz says, uh, sorry, Navarro says, no, but can I have some water? 
and he says, no, water went bad three days ago. And they just glossed over it. But I'm like, no, I need to put a pin in that because how does Mm -hmm. water go bad? Well, we'll see. Yeah, well, yeah, we know. We asked the people in Flint, Michigan, how the water goes yeah, bad. Um, exactly. But um, but then, so she's sitting and chatting with him, and we have this moment of her flashing back to her being in combat. This very mm. graphic moment where she's she's in combat with this other soldier and half of the soldiers, and it's a female, which is interesting because you hardly ever see that. You ever you hardly ever it's hardly ever depicted um of women you know being so graphically hurt in combat at least america i mean you just typically don't see that um so it is interesting to see two women who are in the middle of a combat situation and one of them is just horribly irretrievably injured do you think this was an actual memory do you think the soldier was literally that badly damaged because she looks a bit yeah. like even more than gus spring when when um in breaking bad when gus gets yeah half his face blown That's off true. it's even more than that and it's like how could she be alive so i don't know whether it's sort of a magical realism moment or i think she's a dead woman walking i mean i think yep. she has suffered this trauma traumatic injury and she's just in the last gasps of of her life that's what it seems like to me and is this the point where the where the soldier leans into her and whispers listen I think it is, isn't it? Doesn't she whisper? So. Listen? Yeah. yeah, something, okay. something right. like that. Yeah, yeah. Again, creepy, but but not hokey. You know, it no, just no. really, really works. And then, so here's another thing. So there's a lot of paralleling going on. So at that moment, Navarro gets a call from Alaska police that says that her sister, you know, something's going on with her sister. So she's pulled away to go deal with someone that she's responsible for kind of similar the way that Danvers was called away to go Mm. deal with her daughter. So I think there's going to be these sort of parallels between them, you know, Mm. that they both have these troubled family members in their life. And so Navarro goes to see her sister who seems to have some sort of, you know, mental health issue is, is really struggling somehow and is not happy to be back in Ennis. And there's, there's, again, there's huge trauma. There's huge history just in this little quick, I don't know. It's like a one minute. Oh yeah. Scene, yeah. If that, know? and yeah. And Navarro comforts her. And uh, as you said, uh, Julia, uh, her name's Julia, but Navarro calls her Jules and she's comforting her and she, and she's sort of trying to convince her, no, you're not like mum. Right, so clearly implying that the mother had some serious mental health issues, and Jules is worried that she's inherited it from her mother. But but it's so great. I mean, the, I just the the way that they're laying out these characters, it's just so masterful. Because here you've seen now you've seen Navarro be a badass at work, deal with offenders at work, then deal with all of the politics, you know, all the history of the politics inside the police. And then you see her dealing with this cold case, the brother who's, you know, cold case she's obsessed with. You see that she's been in combat and has lost a friend in combat. And then you see her family life. I mean, how tightly are this storytelling is just so Mm. amazing. Yeah, superb. So now we're with Danvers and little Pistol Pete. They're trying to go over the backstory of who is funding Salal. Like, what were they, you know, what were they up to in this science outpost? Is just, is that a clue to what happened? Where are these scientists? And then we just hear screaming Mimi, who's, um, you know, Miss Drunk, who's in the drunk tank. And I thought they were going to open that cell and like she would have turned into like a werewolf or something like that. Like I thought something really, really, cause the way she was screaming, I'm like, wow, is she like going to, you know, all of a sudden appear to be, I don't know, 
you know, suffering from whatever happened at the at the science outpost. But now yeah. she's just pissed and she's just drunk and mad to be there. And and then that then we get a little bit more backstory, as you said, that Hank Pryor, who's uh, John Hawk's character, kind of reveals that he's got a male order bride, which is such a horrible way mm. to put it. But um, yeah, this scene I thought was really interesting, Lisa, because it, even the very first time I watched it. It's another power dynamic between Hank and Liz. Liz was appointed, what, two months after Annie Kay was murdered, right? Because later on she said, Liz, they're arguing, Liz and Navarro are arguing, and Liz says, you had two months to close this and you never did. She said, I wasn't even here when she was murdered, right? So during mm-hmm. that time, I think Hank was the chief, but he might have been an interim chief, and they were looking and they've appointed Liz as chief. In any case, she's come in. He's now just a now just a deputy or a police officer, but she's the chief. So when Stacey's going berserk in the drunk tank and it's interrupting Peter and uh, Liz are at a computer and they're trying to work stuff out and Liz just oh, can't stand this, the noises are crazy. And she goes in and Hank is opening her cell and she says, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to let her out. Uh, you know, she's driving me crazy. And Liz just stamps on him and says, she's still drunk. And, you know, I'm not letting her off with that. Put her back in the cell. And there's a look between mm-hmm. Hank is like he's pissed off that she's exerting her authority over him. Yeah. That's their position, yeah. right? And so, and then after that, she says, oh, by the way, can you bring me back the files from the Annie K right. case, right? They're in right. his house. Right. And whether it was just because she pissed him off or whether it's a deeper and longer meaning, first he denies even having them and she mm-hmm. calls him on it. And then he deflects and says, oh, yeah, you know, uh, might take me a while. And he smiles at her. And she knows straight away, I'm not going to get those files anytime soon. But she needs them desperately because she needs them for the case. So there's needle between Hank and her. It's another one of those sort of elements of, of needle. And I'm like, mm, this is not a healthy relationship. But anyway. Yeah. So little baby Pistol Pete goes home to his baby and his mama. And it's revealed that he has a partner. They have a baby together. And they are just painfully young. I mean, they yeah. just seem so so young but but i absolutely believe that it that this could be the case that that people grow up very fast and you know make families together very young i think that that makes perfect sense and they're clearly very into each other still and uh, <laughs> but before things can get too hot and frisky in front of their little boy darwin which i think is an interesting name uh which must mean something oh it does i mean his name is darwin and the stated mission of salal drilling through these cores and trying to find bioorganisms is to literally discover the or, it's on the website the origins of life the origins, origins of life, of life. and now we've got a little boy called darwin and as you say he's drawn uh, peter looks under the table and the kid's about two years old and mm-hmm. and he's drawn this very disturbing picture and uh, again thinking about season one i'm like uh, i gotta go back and get full frame on this picture and have a good look at it because it's sort of a stick figure with his hands out and dripping blood. But the more I looked at it, it's like he's holding something. They look like tongues. He's got what appears to be tongue, mm. a tongue in each hand, and there's drops of blood, you know, raining down from the hands. And as will become noted in in, in the next little bit, the eyes of the figure are sort of made out of cross hatches, as if they're mm. the figures had their eyes put out. And that becomes mm. relevant in a little bit later. 
So oh, yeah, that's right. yeah. So so Peter's quite disturbed by this. He's like, shit, you know, we got to talk about this, and she just blows him off, like, yeah, you know, my grandpa's been telling him some of our traditional stories. She's not concerned at all, but Peter's like, right. wow, this is not, and it's sort of a, you know, it brings up that difference between the town. There's inbaked racism within the town against the Inupiaq people. That's one of the themes that gets sort of expanded upon later, and. Peter's not racist to his wife, of course, but it's just the different viewpoints that they have. And she's like, man, that's spirit world stuff. It doesn't matter. And then there's a great scene, as you said, where she just drags him around the corner. Like they're only three meters away from, from the boy who's, you know, playing with his, on the ground. But, you know, she's like getting his trousers off and getting her, getting, she wants to get jiggy, you know? Yeah, and she, yeah. And she almost succeeds, but the phone rings initially. Peter just ignores it. And, she, you know, uh, she's almost ready to close the deal, but uh, <laughs> Kayla, her name is, but, and he goes, no, I, I've got to get this. And and so she picks up the phone and Kayla, by the way, is played by the actress Anne Lamb. And in the end, she's like, come on, come on, come on. And I thought it was really weird. He really violently pushes her away, like on a hair trigger. And she's like, mm. what the fuck? And he walks off into the next room and he's talking to Danvers. And I just thought that was completely sort of out of character as to how violent and abrupt he was. And I thought maybe mm, we're going to see something about that. But anyway. Yeah, maybe. Mm. So Danvers needs him to go to his dad's house and get that stupid file and make up some kind of excuse for why. So he's like, fine. So he goes over there and his dad, you know, is making preparations for his bride to be, his <laughs> Eastern European bride to be who's coming. And so he's pathetically trying to renovate this little trailer. I mean, I was going to mention this later, but this is something I just absolutely remember how I was complaining all over the place in Fargo, how Indira, the the police officer's house did not seem like a place that she would live. Mm, like it didn't yep. seem like it was decorated by her or that it kind of fit into the town. Well, that's the exact opposite. Like every <laughs> interior, every, especially like domestic interior that I've seen so far. I mean, I just so appreciate that all of these houses look prefab, yep. which pre-made because it's in, in a place like that, how you can't really build, no. you know, you can't, really lay a foundation in the middle of the snow or I don't I mean I don't know how houses get built but everything to me looks like it came out of a crate you know and I love that I love how the walls look kind of thin and nothing looks I, everything looks like it's constantly battling the elements and that it's been decorated by you know what you can get in a a home depot or you know what what you have available there's yeah. just a I don't want to say a cheapness to it all but just Sort of, yeah, sort yeah. of temporary, like temporary housing. And as a as somebody who lives in Melbourne and you know married a five bedroom house, three kids have moved out. But I just I was looking at how sort of, as you say, not not flimsy, but it's sort of it's not solid, right? And I just thought. My God, what does he spend a month on heating? Like whatever heat's coming into the house, it's gotta be it's gotta be leaking out everywhere. So, I mean, that's what I'm noticing when when he goes to Danvers' house. Like, or just her, I was just looking at I was mesmerized by her cabinets. Like the cabinetry is just the absolute cheapest. I don't even know what you even call it. I mean, it it doesn't she doesn't have granite countertops. It's all veneer. It's all that kind of almost plasticky looking veneer, but it, it feels really right. You know, yep. we call it laminate. Is, is that a brand? Laminate, there? yeah, Laminex? like a laminate. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Yep. Anyway, okay. so so he brings her the file, 
Oh, and the other thing I noticed that in his father's house, in Hank's house, how Hank has been repainting this room that looks like it's just made of plywood. Yes. And like the paint is like not great. Like it's not well done. It's not like <laughs> no. well coated. Like you could see the brush strokes still. Mm -hmm. And I just love that idea that, that he's just, you know, it, it looks like a DIY. Like, yeah. you know, so, you know, this is a chance for the audience to get caught up on what does all this mean? So Danvers is explaining who the body was. And, and who she was and that, that Annie, is it Annie or Anna? Yeah, no, it's Annie. In the town, she was known as Annie Kay. Yeah, that Annie Kay was kind of a thorn in the side. She was very well-intentioned, but, you know, environmentalist trying to get the, the mind shut down. And apparently she was so outspoken that somebody murdered her very mm. brutally, very. And what Liz is saying, I don't know if she really believes this, but that there was never any way to find this killer because she felt like the town killed her. Yeah. And that there would be never there would never be able to be a way to find out actually who that there was not one person responsible. It was like the whole town hated her. I thought it was a few things interesting in this scene. One, uh, that it was a great device to use Liz explaining to Peter, which at the same time explains to us. So we get caught up as he gets caught up. Exactly. Right? Which, was, exactly. which was terrific. Yeah. And then putting my RCP fan hat on, Lisa, when she said, oh, um, you know, she was stabbed 32 times with an unknown star shaped implement. So the first thing I think of is if somebody stabbed 32 times, that's complete and utter overkill, right? So this mm -hmm. is somebody who's, whoever the murderer is, has lost their rag completely and they're just going crazy. And yeah, the first it's personal. Thing, oh, yeah. personal. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, well, what makes a star-shaped wound? And when you see the photos of it, it's not big. And so if she's been killed by a mine worker or by somebody who, who uses their hands or is some kind of a tradesperson, what do you call them? A contractor. I thought of a mm -hmm. Phillips screwdriver, you know, that's got the star-shaped yeah. tip. Oh, God, yeah, and you're And I'm right. like, oh, maybe that's what it is. So um, anyway, and she tells Peter at that time, she makes it clear to us that this was two months before she got there, that Nav uh, Navarro had the lead at that time and because she was still Ennis police, not a trooper, and that how Nav uh, Navarro had pushed um, Liz to, you know, sort of the case wasn't closed but it was cold and she was trying to make it warm again and she wouldn't do it. Um, and that Navarro was asked by, asked slash ordered by Liz to transfer to troopers because she ended up getting into a fight with some mine workers and probably her boss said, you need to deal with this. And so Navarro had to go to troopers. And that was six years ago. So Navarro's had to stew on that for, for six years. So any wonder they've got mm -hmm. some needle between them. So, yeah. Well, speaking of Navarro, the next scenes again, in a very quick order, you know, she comes to this hot, tall drink of waters trailer and, you know, goes in to, to make a visit and is just it's a very intense scene of intimacy between these two. And this this guy, I mean, he can't have more than like five lines. And I was yeah. just completely captivated <laughs> by him. And I looked him up. And this is one of these stories that makes me so infuriated because so many actors will think, well, I can do what this guy did. This actor's name is Joel Montgrand. Okay. He's yep. a Canadian actor and he's, and he's an indigenous actor and he's gorgeous. And he's like, you know, six foot a million and, mm -hmm. you know, just built like a, just stacked, you mm -hmm. know, uh, great, great physique, great hair, great everything. And this is a guy who just basically, you know, traveled around, worked odd jobs until finally thought I want to be an actor and walked into an agent's office with no appointment and no experience, no headshot, no resume and 
started booking immediately. Wow. And that's one of those stories that people are like, oh, you know, that's kind of the dream. Uh-huh. And I'm sure that his life was much harder than that, but at least that's what his IMDb page says. So he's got a good publicist or that's a, that's a really good story. <laughs> um, but you can tell, I mean, this is something you almost can't teach the, his swagger mm. and his, I mean, uh, look, a lot of actors try to have swagger and try to kind of front and try to be charismatic, but this guy, you can just see it, you know, it leaps off the screen without him even saying anything just the way that he's engaging with her, the way that he's looking at her, the way that he's kind of taking in her kind of, you know, nonchalance at their hookup. I mean, it just speaks volumes when he really doesn't have any lines. And it's not just about him being attractive. I mean, he is very attractive, but mm. to, the, it, there's a presence to him that is like really impressive to me. But anyway, anything else on that? I just thought it was funny that she turns up and as you said, it's it's sort of quick and fast and intense and she just takes the lead and when she yeah. strips off and you and, and they're having sex, she's, she's A, she's on top of him and, and you can see how powerful she is both in physically and, and, her, and her whole demeanour. And I just had the thought, like she basically screws him, goes into the bathroom, brushes her teeth with his toothbrush. There's a little scene about that. And then she leaves with the toothbrush. So she showed up, just treated him like a sex toy, and then it's like, okay, bye, see ya, have fun, and stole his toothbrush. Right. Just, I mean, uh, if this were a dude who did this, he yes, would it not was, be on his side. It was role side, reversal. You know? It was like the, yeah, tra- yeah, she yeah. treated him like some guys treat women. It's like, all right, I'm here, let's have sex. All right, I'm done, I'm going, I'm going to watch, I'm going to the pub or hang out with my mates, see you later. So, yeah, funny. So she's brushed her teeth and leaves with the toothbrush, holding up the toothbrush. We cut hard, and what do we cut to? Liz in the bathroom brushing her teeth with a with yeah a, with I love these little that's what I'm saying before these little symmetries where Liz gets a phone call about her daughter being in trouble and Navarro gets a phone call about her sister kind of being in trouble so I I like these little dovetails you know they're not too on the nose but yeah so so here's where we get a little bit of a revelation where Liz is brushing her teeth and her daughter kind of comes in the doorway and is like you know you know, they, they talk about the near accident that just happened. And and obviously there is some other accident that they have never talked about. And Liz is not about to start. I mean, she's just like, this is not the moment for us to unpack this. You know, we're not going to have our heart to heart talk right now. No. And, and she shuts first. She sort of tries to shut her down physically, like verbally. And when she doesn't, she just coldly closes the door on, on, on her face. It's like, no, we are definitely like she is really not ready for this conversation. So, yeah, that was. No, and that's the part where where the daughter says you didn't have to be my mom. So I'm wondering, that's what I'm wondering if maybe it's a step daughter situation and the father was killed in an accident. Yeah, maybe. And he was a Native American and that's his that's his daughter. And now she's the stepmom. Yeah, it remains to be seen. Mm. Right. Anyway, so I love this. I I love this next scene. I love it. So then we got we got Navarro coming out of this liquor store. So Navarro's leaving with a case of brew and she passes by the offender and just fucks with his car and a couple of things that struck me about this scene. So the offender you're talking about is the one from the crab plant, right? And he she mm-hmm. sees him get out of his truck and he's got a buddy with him and he's loudly saying how he's gonna go over and, you know, mess up and assault this this same woman. And mm-hmm. as she's walking with the case of Bud, why is it shrink wrapped in like glad wrap or you know, cling wrap? And then I'm like, oh, duh, if you're walking out with a cardboard box in Alaska and it's pissing down with snow, 
it's going to mm-hmm. settle on the cardboard box and the box is going to get yeah. wet and it's going to break up. So that's obviously <laughs> going to disintegrate. a thing. Yeah. And I went, oh, okay, because we've never seen that here. And then so as she passes the asshole's truck, she stops, she pulls out a bottle of Bailey's Irish cream mm-hmm. and she tips like, right. most of it into his fuel tank and says, Merry Christmas, motherfucker, and then just walks <laughs> off. And I'm like, this chick is badass. I love her. <laughs> yeah. Right. So then she goes and she gets in her truck and is, about to dri- is going to drive away. So then we cut to Danvers sleeping. You're getting a sense of the demons and the ghosts that are in within her. And it, she's dreaming. It seems like she's dreaming about her son or a child. That's, that calls her mommy, and you see uh, like a in a dreamlike hand around her that looks like a child's hand or something. Yes, yeah, it's on her, it she, comes on her shoulder. So, so she's sort of restless and kind of not. She's not in a deep sleep, and she hears the she hears a child's voice say "mommy," and she answers mm-hmm. Holden. So she's sort mm-hmm. of answering like Holden, "Is that you?" And then we see the hand come over her shoulder, but but we hear. This ethereal Holden whispers to Danvers, "She's awake." So again, mm. like um, like the scientist at the at the thing. Anyway, so and she sits up and she sees this little bear on the floor, and it, and so I'm wondering, is that not supposed to be there? Is that a momentum of her, of her child that she normally doesn't have out because she doesn't seem like the most sentimental person? Mm. How how did that get out? She seems scared to see it. Like, you know, who how did it get out of wherever it's supposed to be? So it's a little polar bear. And then again, the symmetry where we switched to Navarro, you know, driving in her truck and she nearly hits this big lumbering polar bear that gets in the road and the polar bear has got one bloody eye and does not look like it's very healthy or I don't know that something is happening to it. If you look carefully, when she picks up the polar bear plush toy, it's missing its left eye. And, Mm. and then when Navarro is driving through town, she's on her way back from tipping the the drink into um, shithead's uh, fuel tank. And she's on the phone to, it seems like one of the witnesses from the Annie K murder. And then all of a sudden there's a staticky thing and the phone drops out the polar bear sort of walks right in front of her. But before that, when the static comes in, I don't know if it's coming through the phone or she's a, it's in her head, but again, somebody whispers, she's awake. And then she mm. sees the polar bear and then the polar bear turns and its left eye is missing as well. So we've got, right. I don't know if it's a real polar bear or, and she's imagining it. Uh, the plush toy, I don't know, but they've both got their eyes missing, one eye missing, the same eye. Okay, so just kind of wrapping things up. Danvers is up. She's just in this obsessive mode where she's just putting all the pictures out, trying to make sense of all the pictures of the scientists. Is there any connection to the pictures of Annie Kay? And she, you know, is, is just scanning as much as she can. Now, I'm, so I'm confused. So she connects. There's a pic, There's a side picture of Annie Kay alive. It looks like maybe a yep. side mugshot of her, mm-hmm. but th- she's got a tear in her parka. Yep. Um, of her pink parka, and then somehow she could. Um, Danvers connects it to a picture of one of the scientists who's also wearing a pink parka, but has a little smiley face decal on his shoulder. Yep. So somehow so, she's saying that th- those are connected. I don't know why would it would be ripped. Like, why would the decal be ripped off of Annie Kay's? No, no, no. Uh, th- yep, the other way. So the photo of Annie wasn't a mugshot because she's smiling and side on. So it's it's a photo that's, you know, it's, it's a contemporary photo that they put in the case file. So she's wearing mm-hmm. this parka. And it's got a small rip or tear in the on, on the left shoulder. And then so that was obviously six years ago. And then the photo of Clark, Raymond Clark, the scientist, we don't know when it's taken, but it looks to me 
but the patch has been put on to cover the rip, right? But it gotcha. looks like the same coat. And so then the question is, well, how did it get from Annie to Clark? And is it really the same coat six years later? We don't know, but they're just sort of giving us little clues and, you know, it's it's yet to uh, be resolved. But anyway. Okay. So just moving along, we um, we see, again, Fiona Shaw is following the, the ghost of her husband. I don't know who he is, but boy, what an amazing presence. This- I think it's her son, I would assume, is it? From, from the age. Okay. Um, well, I'm not sure if we're seeing, I'm not sure, like, is she seeing him as he was or like, I, yeah. I, I don't, we don't know, but he's just an amazing performer. He's just got this interpretive modern movement dance that he does in the middle of the snow and, and kind of beckons her and points in, in a, in a certain direction. So she knows that whatever he's pointing to is not good. It no, not good. no, it won't be good. So I can't claim credit for this. I did read it in a comment online and I went, oh my God. And I went back and looked at it at that scene and I went, absolutely. So like you, I thought it was some weird interpretive dancing and he was in a, you know, a fugue state or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was so weird. It sort of made me flash on uh, uh, back to Twin Peaks, the Bob character, the, you know, the evil mm-hmm. character. I sort of had a thought of him for some reason, but I should have made a note of who said this, but somebody said, no, that's not a dance. He's miming somebody drowning. And when you go back and look at it, that's exactly what it is. And it looks, in fact, exactly like in the trailer, at the end of the first trailer, I think, the, the second one, Liz seems to have fallen through the ice, either in real terms. I don't think it's real, but she's sort of two or three metres underwater and her arms and legs are flailing and it looks exactly like what Travis is doing. Uh-huh. And, he, and, and he finishes up by, as you said, slowly rolling his hand out and pointing. And in another trailer, we see Holden, possibly her son, doing the exact same thing. And I instantly thought of the final scene of Invasion of the Body Snatchers where Donald Sutherland does exactly that and the, the, he opens his mouth and the noise comes out. And mm. thinking about the Invasion of the Body Snatchers and looking at Issa and her background, I bet that's one of her favourite horror slash supernatural <laughs> films and she's put that in as a as a little homage, I think. Yeah. Anyway. It's Absolutely. Good. So Danvers can't sleep now that she's made this jacket coat connection discovery. So she goes back to the 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 science station and she's looking around. She's looking for this coat and she runs into Navarro, who's there. I forget why she says she's there, but they're both just trying to look around to see what clues they can find and anything significant in there. I mean, they're just you just sort of seeing these two women who are like on a mission and trying to do their jobs and don't want to give each other any softness at all. You know, really. Oh no, any- no, no. This is another very um, sort of adversarial scene where she says so. Uh, and there's an element of racism to um, to Danvers as well because she keeps she sort of says, "Oh, you know, is your spirit world telling you anything?" Something like mm-hmm. that. And so she's running down the you know this sort of belief system, and mm-hmm. and Liz said, Liz slams back and says, "No, I'm getting nothing but your shitty fucking attitude." And then Liz tells her, "Look, you got to basically they have this conversation. You got to let it go." And Liz says. You weren't there. You didn't see the hate. After she was murdered, they kicked her. They didn't kick her to death. She was already dead. They broke her ribs. They broke her teeth. And so it's letting us know just how upset um, Navarro was about the death of this other uh, inupiate woman. And Navarro's blaming Liz for not picking up the case and running with it. And again, Liz, neither of them's taking a backward step. They're just like wailing on each other like boxes in a clinch. And she says, hey, 
I, I wasn't even here until two months later. You had this thing for two months and you couldn't close the case. And Navarro just looks at her and says, right. In other words, she's saying yes, and it's pissing me off and it would to you too. It's just another element of the needle between them and how they're still so far away. i got a suspicion that they're probably going to end up coming together. They won't be buddy buddies, you know, like Riggs and Murtagh in uh, Lethal Weapon, but I think they'll come to some accommodation. Funny thing is, uh, to prove that, you know, denial is not just a river in Egypt, Liz is saying, drop it, drop it, drop it. And yet she's the one who told Peter to bring the case file over. She's actively right. working the case while she's telling Navarro to drop it. So she's not really being truthful to herself about how much that she, this is bothering yeah, her Yeah, she well. seems like a character who doesn't want to admit yeah. too much. She doesn't want to admit to sentimentality or admit to anything resembling human empathy you know but she does feel it she does feel compelled to to find out these answers or you know something is driving her to yeah. all right so we got to pivot we have the wonderful fiona shaw they say that rose agano found it she's let the authorities know that she's found something in the snow so everybody goes rushing out to see what this it is and it's a very macabre gruesome scene i mean how would you describe it it's like the <laughs> scientists are frozen in the snow almost like they've drowned in yes. the snow and they're just they just look like they're in agony yeah it's weird and it's hard to imagine how they got there and they've done this on purpose of course because two of them are up to their neck in snow and the other one's up to his shoulders in snow such that his shoulders are exposed and you can see he's not wearing a parka or anything, right? It's like, I don't know if they're naked or they're down to their you know, underwear or something. But as you said, it's like they've drowned. They're not on top of the snow. They're in the snow. So were they put into a like a culvert sort of thing and then filled with snow or water? I don't know. They've got their eyes open. One of them's got his hands up with fingers outstretched. They've got looks of horror on their face as if they've, it's a photograph almost, not. It's like a tableau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's sort of again it's it's not realistic but it's horrific and they look as spooked as the deer did you know when they jumped off the cliff so did the same thing that spooked the deer spook these guys and make them run to their deaths i don't know but i want to give credit to scott tobias from the new york times in his recap he observed that this whole thing with it um ennis uh in ennis it's like the mirror image of the daylight noir in in insomnia it's like everything's dark and everything's snowy and it just yeah like a mirror image i thought that was a good observation series one of true detective had elements of sort of ritualism about it but with this and Issa's background in horror she's not afraid to go full supernatural so you know the fact that we've got travis and we've got holden and we've got all these things happening she's handling it really well and i'm loving it like i, I don't care if there's mm -hmm. supernatural elements it's more like an x-files thing i love the shot where we get the reveal of the scientists in the snow because we hold on navarro as she's kind of trudging through the snow she passes rose they have a little exchange where rose says yeah travis told me and <laughs> navarro's like travis is dead what you see navarro advancing and the cameras just tracks back far enough to reveal all of these horrific figures embedded in the snow. It's just a great way to reveal it. And so something is awake. Something is coming for people. Something and so wicked this way comes. That's and, right. And we that's should right. say, it's either at the end of this scene or it's in the trailer after this, but the scientists, uh, what do you call it, a, um, a forensics tech, has got a brush and he brushes the head of one of the scientists and on his head is this sort of whirly spiral drawing, which is the exact same thing from season one from the uh, Yellow King. It's the exact oh, it same is. symbol. 
Uh, oh, I didn't know that. There's, there's more to come about that. But that's where this series ends. I need to give credit to The Guardian, New York Times, and uh, Vulture and Collider for some of the information that I gleaned from those people who are far cleverer than me. And in the show notes, I'll put links to the recaps of that. And I'll also put a link to the King in Yellow info and also the trailer for tri- uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid, which was Issa's most recent movie. So that'll all be in there. Well, that's great. I'm going to give credit to Francine Maisler, the casting goddess who put this cast together. It's just great. You know, it's just some really great discoveries, you know, a couple of Brits in there you know, a couple of, you know, international actors in here, which is always so wonderful. Owen McDonald. I mean, there's, there's a lot of really cool actors in here. Some of them who I do recognize from Fortnite and from Arctic Circle. Um, but anyway, I just can't wait. This is going to be, you know, real, really torturous to wait, you know, once a week once again dean i have to wait once a week to see know, the show right? that i love i hate this <laughs> but um i think it's going to be a great season so far i'm so in yeah no the reviews have been outstanding and i'm on a, a discussion group that's uh plenty of people you know didn't like two and three or it got sort of lower ratings than one but uh the, the consensus seems to be that this one is uh right up there with season one so it's a very successful reboot and credit to Issa, who's writing and running this show and whoever gave her the gig because, you know, she doesn't have a huge track record. Everything she's done has been foreign language before this, as far as I can tell, according to IMDb. So it's not like she's a known power in Hollywood. You know, they didn't grab a a Noah Hawley or something like that. They've gone with a relative unknown. But based, again, when you see Tigers Are Not Afraid, you can see a clear line between that and this. And somebody said, no, this, this girl has got the goods and boy, is she delivering. Well, that's great. Okay. Well, we hope you'll come with us on this journey on this new season of True Detective. Let us know what you think of the show and please leave us a five-star review if you enjoy listening to our granular coverage of everything that we do on the show. Thank you, Dean, for your wonderful research. You do it so I don't have to. Well, um, and- <laughs> I just it's like I see these things and it just bugs me. You know, it's like an itch. I have to scratch it. So if I'm going yeah, to scratch it and scratch- dig it up, I might as well share it. So it doesn't cost Keep anything on scratching. to share it. Keep mm. on scratching. Okay. And for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. Killer Casting is a concept created by her, Lisa Zambetti. It is produced by me, Dean Laffin. Logo art by my beautiful wife, April Laffin. And our theme music, We Are Beautiful, comes from them. That would be Hollywood legends, Amphibious Zoo Music. Until next time, Killer Casting, out.